Hello, everyone, and welcome to the 411 Ground and Pound Radio Show, your weekly look into the wide, wacky, wonderful world of mixed martial arts. Boy, did we have some of all of that this week. I'm Robert Winfrey. I'm your host. Uh, Fairwood warning, I am flying solo today. Jeff just had a little bit of a scheduling conflict. It happens. So he'll be back here next week. We also, we talked about this last week a little bit about changing the start time for this week's episode and some stuff came up. Again, it happens. Um, Next week, we'll be back to our regular recording time and Jeff should be back. So for all the fans of Jeff out there, next week, he should be back. Tonight, I'm just going to be reviewing UFC 236, which... We said on paper was all about the top two fights, and in hindsight, it's all about the top two fights. That was not a very good event outside of the main and co-main. Now, in fairness, that might be that might have been the best main and co-main one-two punch of fights in years. Because, and we'll get into some of the specifics. Dang, those fights were great. There'll also be a preview of next week's UFC Fight Night 149 slash UFC on ESPN Plus whatever number that is. Six, I think? Seven. Uh, UFC will be back in Russia for that card, and that is not a good card. Uh, On paper. Just not a good card. And then there was some news. Uh, There was some big news. Quite frankly, we had TJ Dillashaw's Suspension handed down by USADA. Uh, we had some fight announcements. Uh, yeah, so we'll get to all of that. All right. Jump right in here to UFC 236. Last night, they were in Atlanta, Georgia. Did an attendance of 14,297, so almost 14.3. Total gate of 1.9 million. A really good gate. And your main event, Dustin Poirier defeats Max Holloway via unanimous decision, 49-46 across the board. That fight was bonkers in a lot of respects. Um, Max Holloway comes out, looks to do what he normally does in the first round, and Dustin Poirier just gives absolutely zero Fs about what Dustin, about what Max Holloway's doing and just clobbers him with lefts. Uh, this that In that first round, that was the most hurt in terms of taking damage that I've ever seen Max Holloway. Uh, he got badly rocked. Poirier tried to finish. Uh, Max Holloway survived to his inestimable credit. Max survived that onslaught. But he got hurt badly a couple of different times in that round. I think I said that could have been a 10-8. Or was very near to it in some respects, just based on the new scoring criteria. Because Holloway got hurt badly multiple times. Uh, that 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 was a bad, bad round for Max. And Poirier... That first round wound up largely telling the story of the fight. Max was able to adjust a little bit as time went on. He started going to the body more often. But where Max tries to just kind of wear guys down, and he does so with, you know, again, a tremendous amount of volume, an incredibly high pace, 
he just Poirier had the conditioning to hang with that. He faded a little bit, especially in the third round. He got visibly tired in the third round, but gutted through it and found his second win. So again, a lot of credit to him for that. And then I think the other issue Max ran into here was just the power that Dustin presented. Every time Dustin found the target, which was a shockingly high amount, all things considered, every blow he landed had a pretty significant impact on Holloway. Whereas Holloway's on Poirier... Indivi- I mean, Holloway's never been a big one-punch striker. That's just never been his game. But... That was really not his game for this fight. I don't think he ever really hurt Poirier with strikes to the head. He Again, he winded him to the body and had a few different occasions when Poirier would maybe have to back up and take a second to recompose himself, but he never got rocked. He never got wobbled. Uh, whereas he constantly had Max, well, not constantly, but he consistently had Max on a little bit of the rubbery legs. And I don't think Max ever really adjusted to the power differential. Again, Holloway's never really, I don't think, I'm not sure he's ever really been in any of his fights in terms of just one punch, the harder puncher. But the power differential that he was dealing with in this fight was significant. And the other thing that kind of shocked me about Max's performance here was he never adjusted to the defense of Poirier. Poirier did an exceptional job. Anytime Max would start trying to get some momentum with his striking of doing a couple of different things. One, putting his, getting his hands and his shoulders into proper defensive position. Two, just kind of ducking his head. There were a lot of strikes at distance that Max was throwing that Poirier just kind of ducked and took on the, you know, the top of the head, which is the hardest part of your head, actually. And that does a tremendous... That did a pretty good job of just severely mitigating all of the offense that Poirier... Excuse me, that Holloway was trying to land, even in close proximity. If they'd get close, Dustin would kind of... You know, duck his head so anything straight's going to land on the top of his head. He got his arms and shoulders up properly, and Holloway never really was able to consistently rattle off those long combinations that he's known for. I think the other thing Poirier did very, very well in this fight was anytime Max would try to step into him and get off, Poirier just had kind of a decent read on Max's head position and the timing of his punches so that He'd throw a counter hook, and his his blows had more oomph on them. So, Holloway, where Holloway would normally rattle off four or five punches, he'd get two or three deep, and then get cracked with a punch. Or if if Poirier missed, just the miss was enough to force a bit of a reset. And again, this I want to give a lot of credit to <clears throat> excuse me, Dustin Poirier for this performance because Max Holloway excels at making you make bad decisions. I mean if you again, Joe Rogan's fond of saying that fighting is high level problem solving with dire physical consequences, which is a f- very fair way to describe it. And one of the things that Max does so well to his opponents is force them to make a decision. 
And more often than not, the right decision still sucks a lot of the times because you're still going to get hit. But frequently, he just puts you in a position to make the wrong decision. Then after you make the wrong decision, he's able to impose another set of circumstances on you where you have to make another decision that's usually even worse. And Holloway is great at creating these cascading failures of decision-making and just just completely destroying the good options for his opponent until you're just drowning in a sea of offense. And Dustin Poirier consistently made the right decisions whenever Holloway would try to put him in that type of scenario. Be it just covering up against the fence and finding the right time to counter, be it shifting along the cage... Be it being the one to step forward and land the harder punch and just you know, completely kind of derailing Max's train of momentum and technique. It's it, This was a really, really well-schooled, well-thought-out, mature performance from Dustin Poirier. And that deserves a ton of credit because, and this has not been true recently, but for a long time... There was a discipline problem with Poirier. Over his last four fights, he has definitely fixed that. He at least made serious, serious strides towards fixing it because he's stopped the random brawling. He's stayed disciplined. He's stayed sharp. And he's been lowering the boom on guys. And the fact that he was able to do that to Max Holloway, who, I mean, listen to some of the previous shows, I don't need to discuss how highly I think of Max here. That was This was one of Poirier's better performances, all things considered. So, a lot of credit to him. He's now the interim champion. Uh, that should, in theory, set up a date with Habib for the actual title. Now, I say should, but it probably won't because Conor McGregor's out there making noise. I mean, again, if we're going on meritorious claims, then yeah, it should be Poirier and it should be Habib. Unfortunately, there's a non-trivial chance we're going to wind up with something stupid like Connor and Habib getting their rematch, and then Dustin fighting Nate Diaz, or... Assuming Tony's not... Tony Ferguson's not in a position to come back into the discussion, it'll probably be something stupid like that, um... Uh, which would annoy me to no end. I, I don't need to see Connor back in the title picture off of that last performance. Dustin Poirier is the next guy in line at the moment, and give him the shot at the title. That's really all I want. Um, okay. Couple of things about Max's performance here that. Kind of surprised me. Um, One, again, he didn't really address the power game of Poirier. And in some respects, that's that's a difficult thing to adjust for, especially when the power differential becomes as large as it is. I mean, Jose Aldo punches harder than Max Holloway, but... Max was... The differential, I don't think, was large enough to really give Max the same kind of problems that Poirier did. The other thing that... So there's two other things. One, Holloway was a lot more flat on his feet when he'd enter the pocket. And maybe I just need to rewatch some of his previous fights, but he was not angling the way I think he normally does. 
he was not again normally he's not trying to enter necessarily on a straight line he gets in he stays mobile while striking here it was a lot of get into the pocket and then just kind of he stopped moving both his feet and his head and because he was so stable and stationary the counter punches of Poirier were able to find the target very very consistently and I mean there were rounds that Max was winning until he got into one of those types of exchanges and then suddenly he's hurt and backing up and Poirier's winning the round uh, I know there were some people taking issue with the four rounds to one scorecard for Dustin Poirier. In real time, I scored this three to two for Poirier. Um, the fourth round is a bit of a swing round because Holloway wins the vast majority of it, but then near the end, he gets split open with a knee and not backs up into the fence and gets clinched and has blood pouring down his face and just a bad visual. I still think Holloway probably did enough to win that round if we look at it. If we take away some of the dramatics and the optics, that's probably a Holloway round, but judges have to do this kind of stuff in real time. And in real time, I can see the dramatic moments from Poirier. And it's while Holloway was winning the previous, you know, the rest of the fourth, it's not like he did so by a massive margin. He was winning it. I don't want to, I'm not going to mince words about that, but... He had not so definitively won the rest of it that it you couldn't make an argument for Poirier based on his successes, especially the dramatic successes. So I'm not bent out of shape about it. Do I think four rounds to one reflects what a close fight this is? Absolutely not. If you want a scorecard that reflects how competitive the fight was, then you might take issue with four to one. But the scorecards are not designed to reflect the competitive nature of the fight. They're designed to reflect who won what rounds. And those two things do not always line up. There was... Okay, the other thing about Max at lightweight that I think... I think we all knew part of this, but to see it demonstrated so starkly was a big deal. Um... I'm not saying Max Holloway can't be competitive at lightweight. He was he was competitive here. And Dustin Poirier's one of the, you know, three or four best lightweights in the world. But if he's going to really make a run at lightweight, he's going to have to abandon featherweight and change his physiology a little bit. One of Poirier's keys to victory, in addition to just being the harder puncher, he was able to clinch Max Holloway more successfully than anyone in a really long time. Watch some of Max Holloway's other, you know, more recent fights. Uh, the Ricardo Lamas fight. Lamas does a lot of, you know, double legs against the fence, a lot of clinching. And Holloway clinch breaks consistently and border, I won't say easily, but you know, borderline easily. Look at the Ortega fight. Ortega spends significant portions of that fight trying to close distance, trying to tie up. And Max just, all the time, proper whizzer, proper bicep control, push down the head, break, circle, and then get back to business. And if you watch Max in this fight, whenever they're clinched, Max is still doing things technically correct. But technique is designed to minimize the amount of 
muscular force you need. It does not remove it entirely. And a lot of the proper technical things that Holloway is doing, he now, he in this instance, had to add more muscle to. He had to add more oomph. And that slowed down a lot of his, a lot of that clinch breaking. He was the physically weaker competitor here. Not just, again, not just punching power, but just the, the physicality of Poirier whenever they got into a clinch position gave him problems in a way that no one at featherweight has. Not in a long time, at any rate. If Max wants to really make a run at 155, I don't think he can even keep the possibility of featherweight in his mind. He's going to have to put on a fairly significant amount of muscle. And that's not, I mean, that's not going to jack up his punching power through the roof, but it's going to help, and more importantly, it's going to help him deal with, again, the physical nature of the guys who are going to clinch him. I mean, I still think Holloway asks some very interesting questions of Khabib and his game, but after watching the way he struggled to get Dustin Poirier off of him, if if Khabib gets a hold of you, like, similar to how Poirier did, you are not getting free, man. You're just not. And if he wants to make a run at lightweight, there's he's going to have to spend some time in the weight room. He's going to have to change elements of his body. I mean, look at Poirier, who was a, you know, a featherweight competitor and near title contender for a long time. Look at the way he looks from his lightweight debut. I believe that was against Carlos Diego Fajaya. Don't quote me on that. But I believe that was his first move up to lightweight in the UFC. And look at his body now. Like, when he first moves up, it's like, okay, I'm just going to stop. It's kind of just going to stop cutting weight. But over the intervening years, because he did made that move in 14, so over the last five years, he has significantly bulked up, especially through the shoulders and upper back. I mean, even commentary mentioned it. If you stand these two next to each other, again, Holloway was a little taller. But there's not a lot of doubt that Dustin Poirier was the bigger guy. And that's the same type of move that Max is going to have to make in terms of adjusting and fine-tuning. Because he is very fine-tuned for 145. He's going to have to go through that same fine-tuning to find the right balance of increased muscle mass without really compromising his cardio and ways he's going to deal with some of the more powerful punchers at lightweight that he doesn't have to deal with at featherweight. And that's going to take a concerted effort on his part if he's going to make that move. So, just something he's really going to have to deal with. Uh, Credit to Max after the fight. Uh, Apparently Dustin Poirier was donating a lot of his fight gear from this to a charitable uh, auction to build a playground for disabled and terminal and you know uh, disabled children somewhere in his home city and max gave him his fight gear as well and said yeah i'll add it to the list so you know just credit to these two guys for being genuinely good dudes by all accounts again it was a really good fight i don't know what's next for holloway i mean if he goes back to featherweight it's probably volkanovsky if volkanovsky gets by aldo assuming that fight holds together I think if it were going to fall out, it would have fallen out by now. So hopefully that fight holds. Well, I say hopefully, but... If Volkanovski get by, gets by Aldo, it's it's pretty clearly Volkanovski. 
If he stays at lightweight, I mean, I've said that the fight between Tony Ferguson and Max Holloway is a dream of mine. It absolutely is. I mean, who'd say no to, like, Holloway and Barboza, or Holloway and Gagey, or Holloway and Cowboy, or Holloway and freaking anyone in that division? Who is not excited about the prospect of those fights? Because if you're not, this may not be the sport for you, but there's adjustments he's going to have to make if that's the move he wants to go. He's not going to be able to kind of bounce around. I mean, Conor... I hate, there's two things about Conor McGregor's ability to move from featherweight to lightweight that I think facilitated his success. One is that Conor had an absolutely brutal weight cut to 145. I, I mean, it was said at the time that, you know, Jose Aldo's a big featherweight, all things considered. Conor McGregor was a lightweight who could make 145, and there's a significant difference there. So Conor had a much more serious cut to that weight. Conor also became a big enough star that he was able to just jump the line and and wound up in a very favorable matchup when he fought for the belt. I still think that if he has to fight RDA instead of Eddie Alvarez, I like RDA's chances in that fight, just based on just based on styles. Doesn't mean Conor can't win, but the style of Dos Anjos presents problems. Instead, he fought Eddie Alvarez, who A, fought like a complete moron, and he's admitted as such in that fight, and B, even Eddie at his best, is a good style matchup for Conor McGregor. And I mean, he never fought at lightweight again, and then, you know, he took time off. He, look at his next lightweight fight. He fought Khabib and got smashed. And that, bear in mind, that was also after he took enough time to properly kind of reacclimate his body, but point being, Max is not really in that same position. I mean, Daniel Cormier going back up to heavyweight after all that time at light heavyweight is also, I mean, 205 to heavyweight is a bit different as well because there's some very big guys at 205 who just get to benefit from not cutting weight. And even then, a lot of them wind up changing elements of their body. I mean, Cormier got heavier for the Stipe fight than he had been in quite some time. I don't mean he got fat. I mean, he deliberately kind of got heavier. I mean, he was heavier than Stipe for that fight. He was like 250. So that one's a little bit different, but if you look at a lot of the guys who just kind of jump up and start having a lot of immediate success... That's not quite the... Again, featherweight to lightweight is not quite the same thing, especially how deep lightweight is. Again, not impossible. Could Max make a legitimate run at lightweight if he put himself to it? Yeah. Could he be in the title picture if he dedicated himself to fighting at lightweight? Oh, yeah. He absolutely could become a champion. He's that good. There's just changes that need to be made to accommodate that new reality that he didn't make here. Uh, This was a great fight. Absolutely look it up. Uh, Tremendous action. Back and forth. Blood and guts. Uh, One of the, again, a a top five fight of the year candidate right now. And I think where you land on which of these, this or the co-main is fight of the year is largely down to personal preference. For me, it was Adesanya versus Gastelum. As this is my front runner for fight of the year right now. Because... That's a good way to dovetail. And for the record, I do know Jeff's thoughts on Poirier and Holloway as far as fight of the year. That is his fight of the year right now. Uh, so he loved that fight to death, and I'm sad that he's not gonna. That again, we weren't quite able to get together. I will try to give him some time next week if we can find it, and that's pertinent to 
talk about this one. Israel Adesanya defeats Kelvin Gastelum via unanimous decision, 48-46 across the boards, which is what I had as well. This fight, oh, I loved this fight so much. Um, again, I, this was the best one-two punch of Maine and Co-Maine in a long time, and... I think I prefer this one because... Let me be very clear about what I'm about to say. Poirier versus Holloway was not a couple of scrubs. Both are very polished. Both are very sophisticated fighters. But the way they fought and the way they matched up lended itself to a very readable and a very... I say readable... While there's a degree of sophistication that you as a fight fan need to have to really understand the nuance of Poirier and Holloway, you can get the gist of it just by watching it. There was a severe amount of sophistication to Adesanya versus Gastelum that, frankly, I still don't really have a handle on. I need, I'm going to have to rewatch this fight a few times before I really get kind of a feel for what's going on. Because, again, Poirier and Holloway, there's little things I am sure that I missed. Little battles for foot position, decisions about which stance Holloway's in, Poirier's shot selection that I will need to go over with more of a fine-tooth comb. I'm, I have no doubt of this. With Gastelum and Adesanya, you're dealing with two guys who, over the course of this fight made reads, adjusted, readjusted, got hurt, got bloodied up, got lumped up. Adesanya's upper lip was screwed after this fight. That thing was huge. And then gutted through serious... Both of these guys gutted through tremendous adversity. Uh, this was... And again, when I say there's a significant degree of sophistication here, there's a lot of Adesanya's game that I don't really have a handle on in terms of his setups, in terms of his trapping, in terms of his shot selection, that I just, again, he's operating on a level that I struggle to understand even conceptually. And that's hap that happens with other fights. I'm not trying to put Adesanya on this massive pedestal here because there were issues he had in this fight, and I do want to, drill I do want to address them. There's fighters who, I mean, uh, Damian Maya on the ground in a lot of respects. I spent a lot of time not really understanding his game. I mean, I could tell you the the nuts and bolts, but you know, the again, the nuance, the sophistication of what he was doing, I struggled with. It took a long time for me to really kind of get a grasp on that. And I'm kind of and that's kind of where I am with Adesanya and his striking. I I understand the nuts and bolts. But there's degrees of sophistication that he operates on that I am still trying to really come to understand, especially in real time. I mean, again, I'll watch this fight a few times, and I'll come away with it with a better understanding of his game. But you know, watching in real time, and as I sit here right now recording this, there's a lot about his game that I just, I don't, I don't get, and I mean that in a good way. That's just clearly a level or so above 
my ability to easily read and understand. And that both served to his to his credit in this fight, and it got him in trouble on a couple of occasions. And I want to give a lot of credit to Kelvin Gastelum. Gastelum came into this fight unbelievably well prepared. You could see it the way the first round played out, the way even some of the other rounds that Gastelum lost played out. He was very well schooled for Israel Adesanya. He had a read on a lot of what Adesanya was going to do. These two guys spent a lot of time trying to fake and feint and draw each other out, and neither, for a lot of this fight, neither of them was biting. And that's a big deal, especially for Adesanya, whose game kind of revolves, not revolves, a significant portion of his game. I mean, if you look at the Silva fight or the Derek Brunson fight, I mean, any of his fights, he feints, and A, his feints are good because they look like his strikes. That's how you know you have a good feint. If someone's jab looks exactly like their fainted jab in terms of the starting motion, that's how you know you've got a good feint. Adesanya has great feints in basically whatever he tries to do. And I don't know what Gastelum saw in Tape Study or Rafael Cordero saw, but in the first couple of rounds, he was not biting at all on Israel's feints. Gastelum's game, I said it last week, is very well-executed fundamentals. He's a lot of one-twos. And there's a reason for that. It works. And he caught Adesanya a few times. I mean, he hurt him in the first round. He hurt him the fourth round. The fourth and fifth round, that ten-minute stretch, is absolutely insane. Uh, It's just insane. But Gastelum... Finds a few openings, especially before Adesanya gets a real read on his offense. Gastelum has tremendous hand speed and punching power. And that's a that puts him in a position to win pretty much any fight he's in. He has the chance to win because he knows how to fight to those strengths. And he found some openings. Now... Once Adesanya got kind of a read on that, Gastelum still landed throughout the fight, but a lot of the powerful impact of his punches was negated by Adesanya either rolling with them, partially deflecting them, seeing them coming. It's bad to get punched. It's worse to get punched when you don't see it coming. And credit to Gastelum because, again, he made an adjustment in the fourth. I mean, the fa- he did a lot of the same thing things through three rounds. And in the second and third, Adesanya started picking up on those things, started landing counters. He Gastelum started biting on the fakes, on the fakes of Adesanya once Adesanya had success with his offense. A lot of guys come in to fight Adesanya, and they're in their own head. So as soon as he starts faking, they start biting. It took four or five really solid inside leg kicks from Adesanya to actually land and do damage to Gastelum before he started reacting to the to the fake of the with the, the rear leg. And I mean, again, once you take damage, the equation changes. But again, a lot of credit to Gastelum for not just biting on every fake that Adesanya threw out there. He had a real good read on what was faked and what was going to be legit. And then again, in the fourth round, Gastelum is down on all the scorecards, 
two rounds to one. At a minimum, the third round was very close. At a minimum, the third round is close. Uh, first round goes to Gastelum. Second round goes to Adesanya. Third round goes to Adesanya. We know that now based on the scorecards. Close round. Gastelum did something he doesn't do very often, and that's a really great way to surprise someone who has a read on you. Because Adesanya pretty clearly, into that fourth round, had a solid read on Gastelum. He was Again, he was still getting hit. But he had a read. He was able to draw out some of the big looping punches. Gastelum's hands had slowed down pretty noticeably. He was still there and he was still landing, but they he did not have the same speed with his hands that he did earlier. And, I mean, that happens to everybody. Like, the number of people who can maintain tremendous hand speed over the course of 30 minutes of fighting is very, very limited. You need guys like Leo Santa Cruz or Vasily Lomachenko who do nothing but box to maintain the ty- that type of hand speed over that much time. And Gastelum found an opening for a head kick. I mean, I don't think I've seen Kelvin Gastelum throw a head kick very infrequently, if nothing else, before. And he threw it, it landed, and it badly stunned Adesanya. He locked up. It took, it took Kelvin a minute to realize, oh, I heard him with that. And I think one of the definitive moments in this fight, after he lands that head kick, he backs Israel into the fence. He looks to finish. Israel covers up, fires back, but is very clearly hurt. And Gastelum, in the heat of that moment, shoots for a double leg. Now, there wasn't a tremendous amount of time left in the round. And maybe he thought, okay, he's badly enough hurt that I can get him down. And from there, I can start attacking him off on his back. But... I think, you know, if you believe in alternate realities, I think there's an alternate reality where Kelvin doesn't shoot that double leg and is able to find another couple of hard punches on the feet that might have won him that fight. I mean, as it stands, that's not what happened, but a ve- I, think a, I think that was a bigger moment, especially now in retrospect, than we all realized re- in real time. And then Israel Adesanya in the fifth round of this fight... Good lord. I I mean, this needs to be properly prefaced. You're in the fifth round of a title fight. You're two rounds apiece. So you officially you're two rounds apiece. You need this round. He doesn't know he's two rounds apiece. It could be three to one. But at a minimum, you know, best case scenario, you're two rounds apiece going into the fifth round. You just suffered the worst round of your UFC or MMA career. I think that's pretty definitive. And for him to rebound from that, that that set of circumstances, again, you're 20 minutes deep into the fight, more than that with the time between rounds, but you've been fighting for 20 minutes. You've just suffered the worst round of your career. In MMA, I know he got stopped a few times in kickboxing, but comprehensively the worst round of his UFC career. To then come out for the fifth round and to do what he did, because he doesn't just win the round. Remember, those scores were 48-46. He threw a 10-8 round on Kelvin Gastelum in that fifth round. He had some tremendous he had some tremendous sequences in that fifth round, not just of striking offense. Um, Gastelum goes for a takedown. He kind of reaches, he uses the threat of a guillotine to kind of get the front headlock, but he winds up on his back. 
And Israel immediately, and again, this is the kind of thing that you really need proper context. Israel is fundamentally a kickboxer. That is his background. And he's under a wrestler like Kelvin Gastelum after he's been fighting for over 20 minutes. This was this was pretty deep into that. This was about halfway, I think, into the fifth. And he just immediately throws up an armbar, transitions to a triangle, and these are not the... Bear in mind, if you're a, you know, a jiu-jitsu technician or a perfectionist, these are not the tightest attempts in the world. Uh, but I'm not going nit- to overly nitpick his technique here because he goes for them. He goes for... And, even if I were, he does a lot of stuff correctly. Gets the triangle, not for the submission necessarily, but it's tight enough that it gets Gastelum to kind of move his base. Israel uses that to sweep, get on top, disengage, and stand up. I mean, it it was a... Especially for a guy who does not have a grappling base, it was a marvelous sequence, especially tired, especially against Kelvin Gastelum. And then the closing 40 seconds or so of this fight is just a barrage of offense from Adesanya. I mean, Kelvin Gastelum's chin is borderline inhuman. This fight was... This fight could have been stopped near the end of the fifth. Kelvin got dropped a couple of different times. And he... I mean, and credit to Kelvin because he would get dropped, but he never, his eyes never went glassy. He was always present and still kind of trying to the best of his ability. And again, if Israel gets the last knockdown that he did with another 15 seconds, he probably can finish that fight. But Gastelum's durability in the face of that onslaught, it, it, that deserves all kinds of kudos. The fact that Adesanya came back from that fourth round and did what he did in the fifth is... It borders on the superhuman. Like, that is insane. The amount of... Again, forget this. Let's move a little bit beyond the physical training because both men are very well physically trained. You would wind up going into deep places within your soul when you're in positions like that. And, you know, in Gaslam 2 in the fifth to just survive it. The number of people that Adesanya would put away with that same barrage, with half of that same barrage, is, frankly, the vast majority of the planet. And Gastelum survived it. That is is an un... That that is a near-superhuman level of intestinal fortitude. Uh, Again, this this was an absolutely brilliant fight. There was blood and guts, there was momentum shifts, there was technical reads. Again, Kelvin, because Kelvin does such fundamental things, and just so consistently, the subtle differences in his in his motions wind up making a significant difference. I mean, Israel Adesanya has been hit with one-twos his entire life, I would bet. So Gastelum finding a slightly different angle, finding a timing opening to land them against him consistently was deeply, deeply impressive. Adesanya making the counter-reads. Adesanya finding ways to draw, to finally start to draw those out of him so he could counter. Uh, I mean, again, this was an absolutely tremendous, tremendous contest. Uh, I still... I would still favor Robert Whitaker over Adesanya. 
or Gastelum for that matter, but I would not be, I'll put it this way, I would favor him, but I would not be surprised if either of them, assuming they inevitably fight, beats him. I mean, and, and severe credit to Israel Adesanya. The man has had six fights in the UFC in 14 months and has faced a steadily rising level of opposition and within his first six fights has become champion, has not lost, and, again, has beaten some inc- some very, very talented fighters. Uh, again, this should set up a date between Adesanya and Robert Whitaker. It'll be a big fight for Oceania. I mean, that's New Zealand. I know Adesanya was born in Nigeria, but... He fights out of New Zealand. He has the New Zealand accent. That's kind of what he reps in some respects. To have a New Zealand guy against Whitaker, who's Australian, uh, at, at the UFC level, it's a big deal. And I'm salivating over the prospect of Adesanya and Whitaker. That's that's a heck of a fight. Uh, Gastelum wasn't very happy with the decision. Again, I think it was correct. I mean, I frankly, the best Kelvin can argue for is a draw. If you give Kelvin the third, then he still was on the wrong end of a 10-8 in the fifth, and that would wind up with, and he would wind up just having a draw. I don't think there's an argument based on the scoring criteria for Kelvin winning. I mean, even though he hurt Adesanya in the first and the fourth, I don't think he won those by a wide enough margin to necessitate a, a 10-8. Uh, but again, tremendous, tremendous fight. I, one of Gastelum's better performances, despite I mean, despite losing, this wasn't a this wasn't a quick knockout. I mean, Gastelum knocked a lot of guys out very, very early, and that is absolutely a tremendous skill. But for him to dig deep like this, uh, to have the type of performance that he did against this level of opposition, uh, a, a really, really thorough performance from Kelvin Gastelum in both, you know, in both success and in adversity. So, this was a great, great fight. My fight of the year right now. And if we get something better, I'm going to be really, really happy about that. Uh, Great fight. The rest of the card, eh... I'm going to go quicker through these. I don't have a whole lot to say about some of them. Uh, Khalil Roundtree Jr. defeated Eric Anders via unanimous decision, 30-26 across the boards. Um, Roundtree's best fight in the UFC's best performance. He was more disciplined. He showed off... Uh, he spent a lot of training time in Thailand for this, and it very was very, very evident. I mean, he came out very much in the Thai stance, tore up Eric Anders, the inside of Eric Anders' lead leg with some pretty hellacious kicks. Didn't engage in brawling. Um, and I, Eric Anders just didn't have... I think he expected a very different version of Roundtree than what he got, and he never adjusted. Um, I don't... Again, Eric Anders still has a lot of athletic potential. He still has... He's still a very good fighter, but I don't think his coaching staff is doing him justice at the moment. Um, also, Eric Anders, I mean, he uh, Roundtree got a 10-8 in the second. 
and then kind of just took his foot off the gas in the third. I don't know if he gassed out a little bit himself, which is possible, because he dropped Anders like four times in the second round, and a couple of those times he went hard. I don't know if he just didn't feel comfortable putting the type of damage into Anders that was going to be necessary to finish the fight. Uh, so, I don't know, but... He should have. He probably should have finished that fight, to be quite honest. Um, I thought he would in the third, after the, especially after the second, but then he kind of took his foot off the gas for whatever reason, so... A solid performance from him. Anders needs a pretty serious, pretty serious, uh, I won't say complete overhaul, but he, he needs to rethink some things about how he's approaching this in terms of his coaching and his preparation and whatnot. Dwight Grant defeated Alan Joban via split decision. 229-28 for Grant, 130-27 for Joban. Neither guy gets to complain about the decision after the. this was a... I was 29-28, Grant. This was a very lackluster fight. I know Joban was unbelievably pissed. Um, sorry, I mean, look, I get it. You know, you lose, you don't make as much money. I really get that, and that sucks. I think there's a perfectly valid argument for doing away with the show-and-win system in favor of just a flat fee for fighters, but you don't get to complain about any scorecard for that fight. Uh, not after the way that fight went. Just, sorry, on, on its objective merits, neither guy gets to complain about e any scorecard. Because when I think you could probably get 30-27 for either guy, ne nobody gets to complain about any scores. Nikita Krylov defeated Ovin St. Preux via rear naked choke in the second round. The only thing of interest here is Kry some of Krylov's finishing technique. Uh, he gets the back of St. Prue, and then he goes for the choke, but he can't, he can't, he only really gets kind of across the face. Now, and, and the way he decides to finish from that position is something that I, I've, you see, a I've seen a bit more of it recently. It's something that's kind of coming, people are gaining a better understanding of. He flattens out over St. Prue with his hooks. Now, flatten is actually kind of a, a bit of a misnomer here. When you do this properly with your hip pressure, you don't... Again, imagine like you're just laying down flat on the ground. You can actually, based on your physiology, uh, arc yourself upward. So, again, say you're laying on your stomach. Bring your head and your shoulders up. Bring your feet and your heels up. And you get kind of that, you know, uh, you know very, very shallow bowl. You can actually get that bit of an arc in your body. And if you have really tremendous hip pressure, especially from the back mount, when you force someone down like that, you get that arc. Uh, Glover Teixeira did that in the Misha Serkinov fight as well, is another good example of this. And as he, you know, forces that bow in the back, he's pulling back on the head of Ovin St. Preux with his arms and driving the hips down. And the, the overall just kind of physical bow motion of that forces the head and the back to arch. And then the arm, just as you kind of force that arch, you can slip your arm lower and get it around the, ch get it under the neck, well, under the chin, around the neck, and that's kind of where he got, and that forced the submission, uh, forced the tap. A uh, much, much needed win for Krylov. 
And I think we've seen kind of the ceiling for OSP. I think he's on the downside. This is a guy who's always been very awkward with his legs. He's had cardio issues. Uh, and I I mean, I, I've joked in the past that Ovin St. Prue has spent the last like 12 years being young and promising. And at a certain point, you're no longer young and you're no longer promising. Uh, setting aside the quasi-facetious nature of that, I think there's some truth to the observation generally. Uh, on the prelims, Matt Frivola defeated Jalen Turner via unanimous decision, 30-27. Uh, decent enough fight, largely forgettable. Uh, Turner just had some issues dealing with the kind of constant grappling of Frivola. Uh, on the feet, Turner seemed to have the better of it, but Frivola was able to kind of keep forcing the issue and get the fight pretty consistently where he wanted it. So, you got that. Alexandre Pantoja defeated Wilson Hayes via TKO in the first round. That is most likely the last you will see of Wilson Hayes in the UFC. Not only is this, uh, like, he's like 4-1 and one in his last five. Or one and four in his last five, excuse me. Yeah. He's been finished in three of those losses, and the UFC's basically doing away with flyweight, so he's probably going to be somewhere else. Uh, kind of sucks for Pantoja in some respects, because I don't know how much success he will find at bantamweight. He's, I mean, he's five and one in the UFC at flyweight. His only loss is to Dustin Ortiz. He's on a three-fight winning streak. He's finished his last two opponents. But if he's going to be forced to move up to bantamweight, I think he's just kind of going to exist somewhere in the division. Uh, Max Griffin defeated uh, Zellam Imadaya via majority decision. Two 29-27s, one 28-28 draw. Imadaya was deducted a point in the first for grabbing the fence. Good. Uh, frankly, I would like to see more point deductions from fouls. I really, really would. It's it, There's a lot of fouls that go just kind of unremarked on in MMA. and uh, So, credit, so, you know, fair play. I have no issue with the point deduction. I think I scored this a draw. I think I had this 28-28, but I, I don't really care if Griffin... Uh, this was not a very interesting or engaging fight. Khalid Taha defeated Boston Salmon via TKO 25 seconds into the first round. Taha just... Caught Salmon with a... He didn't really land the right, but he threw a right-hand lead and then a left hook just sent Salmon face-first into the canvas. Uh, again, 25-second finish. Good for Taha. Uh, Bilal Muhammad defeated Curtis Millinder via unanimous decision. Two 29-27s and one 30-26. Not sure on the... I'm not sure if I gave Muhammad a 10-8. I'm not sure that where that was justified. But Millender, on the ground, has some pretty serious liabilities, and Muhammad just weathered kind of the storm of the first round and then forced the fight where he wanted it in the second and third. So uh, good stuff from Muhammad, all things considered. Montel Jackson defeated Andre Sukumtot via unanimous decision, 30 2627 29-27. Uh, Andre Sukumtot just makes questionable decisions in real time pretty consistently. I mean, I'm, I joked that 
you know, this is a guy who lost a one. This is a guy who literally, in some respects, lost a one-legged, lost an ass-kicking fight to a one-legged man when he fought Sean O'Malley. Uh, solid, solid overall performance from Jackson. Nothing great, but uh, I mean, he won from where I sat every round, and threw a ten-eight up in the third round, in the third. So, you know, credit to him. Poliana Botello defeated Lauren Mueller via unanimous decision, 29-28 across the boards. Um, I confused, I just, looking at Lauren Mueller, looking at her name, I confused her with Lauren Murphy. Would not have changed my pick, mind you. I still would have picked Mueller, but wanted to acknowledge my bad there. Uh, yeah, pretty good stuff from Botello. She landed a really, really solid body kick in the first that took a lot of the wind out of Mueller's sails. Uh, I mean, Botello just kind of coasted away the third round, but she'd won the first two and was slowing down, and Mueller couldn't really force the action in the third, so. And kicking everything off, Brandon Davis defeated Randy Costa via rear naked choke in the second. Costa's just an awkward puncher who's... I, I, I mean, commentary brought this up, but watching him, he looks like a guy who's used to getting his opponents out of there in less than two minutes. And a lot of those kind of guys, when they run into... The first time they run into someone who seems to go, Oh, you hit me pretty hard. Okay, let's keep fighting. They don't really have a plan B. <laughs> they don't even really have, like, a plan... You know, 1A, where they adjust elements of their striking game. And uh, So, Davis got the win. Called out Sean O'Malley, who I had kind of forgotten was a thing. Uh, I mean, sure, make that fight. The UFC will probably make that fight. Sean O'Malley will probably win, which is why the UFC will make that fight. It seems to favor him, and the UFC likes him. So, Again, not the best night of fights if we look top to bottom, but those top two fights were so good. Uh, so uh, just a big personal thank you to Dustin Poirier, Max Holloway, Israel Adesanya, and Kelvin Gastelum for two just absolutely spectacular fights. Alright, I will probably not be saying that about anything from next week, so let's go ahead and move on to UFC Fight Night 149. The UFC is back in Russia for this, though we will be in St. Petersburg. Uh, fair warning to anyone who wants to watch this, I mean, not, it, A, it's only on ESPN+, Plus. B, it starts early, it starts at, I believe, 10 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. Uh, so, because it starts at 8 my time, so yeah, that'll be 10 Eastern. So, early morning card, uh, for those who want to watch it. There's not a whole lot to really kind of dip into here. Um, your main event is... I'm, I'm, I'm relatively interested in the main event. I, I shouldn't be overly down on this, because Alistair Overeem versus Alexi Olyanik is... A perfectly acceptable kind of freak... Not real... It's weird because it's a freak show heavyweight fight, but it's not the, you know, abomination freak show heavyweight fight. It's Alistair Overeem, who, you know, one of the premier heavyweights in MMA or kickboxing. Overeem coming off of his... Uh, a win over Sergei Pavlovich, who's also on this card. Uh, that broke a two-fight losing streak when he was knocked out by Francis Ngannou and Curtis Blades. And Alexei Olyanik is... He's lost at a couple of key junctures. One was the 
majority decision to Daniel Omialanchuk. He won two in a row, then had the doctor stoppage against Curtis Blades. Now he's won two more in a row. With submissions over Junior Albini and Mark Hunt. And, I mean, I don't want to say he's in the title picture with a win here, but he's certainly in that orbit, generally speaking. Uh, this is a very classic kind of striker versus grappler matchup. Alistair Overeem, devastating striker. Alexi Olyanik, just crushing grip strength, wants to get this onto the mat as quickly as possible. And I'm... I'm leaning towards Overeem. I mean, he's been able to pretty consistently deal with a lot of grapplers. Um... I mean, he struggled a bit with Blades, but Olenek's takedowns are not nearly the caliber of Curtis Blades' takedowns. So I'm gonna... Of course, Olenek will also pull guard. Especially if he can kind of wrap up the head. Uh, so, again, there's... This is a moderately interesting fight. I'm leaning towards Overeem. But this is the... I mean, if you're gonna look forward to a fight on this card, it's probably this one. Uh, your co-main event will have Islam Makachev, and it's a shame that his original opponent f fell out because he was supposed to fight... Supposed to fight someone else, I want to say, and I was interested... I, I mean, I kind of like Makachev. Makachev is... Is 16-1. and one. Uh, he, uh, overall, he is 5-1 and one in the UFC. He's only lost to Adriano Martins. He's won his last two fights. He knocked out Gleison Tebow and submitted Cajun Johnson. I mean, Makachev's got some pretty, pretty serious upside, and I'm kind of looking forward to this, and I, I like him generally. And he's fighting a promotional newcomer. He will be fighting... Armin, where is this guy from? Armenia? Is that the Armenian flag? Ah, it is. My knowledge of flags, it maintains. Uh, frankly, I blame uh, just the computer version of Mahjong. I'm dating myself here. Way back in the day, you had either the Mahjong tiles, you could do it with the country flag, with the flags of countries across the world. Same game, but you just you, you matched flags instead of Mahjong tiles. I did a lot of that. I was a very lonely child. Um, so I'm going to have to make an educated guess about how to pronounce this gentleman's last name. Armin Sirakian? Saryukin? Saryukian? I'm going with Saryukian, till I hear otherwise. <laughs> Uh, Sayukian is 13-1. and one. This is his UFC debut. He's on a 12-fight winning streak overall. Uh, so, guy with a bit of bit of steam behind him. I like Makachev in the dark because I'm not familiar with Sarukian. But, uh... And that one's got a little bit of potential. So, something to keep an eye on. In our Dear Lord, Why Do You Do This To Me fight of the evening... No, no, sorry. Our, the first one of those fights we'll be talking about, because there's a few others. Sergei Pavlovich will be fighting Marcelo Golm in a battle of 
crappy, crappy heavyweights. Oh. Uh, Pavlovich coming off of his first loss. He was 12-0 going into the Overeem fight. Overeem stopped him. Uh, so, yeah. And Golm is 6-2. He is 1-2 in the UFC. Uh, coming off back-to-back losses to Timothy Johnson and Arjun Buller. I mean, I'll pick Pavlovich, but just end quickly. I don't care who wins. Just within three minutes, please. Um, at light heavyweight, Ivan Sh- uh, I'm going to destroy this guy's name as well. Shatirikov. Okay, I'm trying not to swear. This man's last name is... And he's Russian, so I know there's a weird pronunciation here that I'm just not getting. It's S-H-T-Y-R-K-O-V. And I'm just... I'm not going to... Again, there's a very obvious way to, to, mispronou- to mispronounce that. Um... So I'm going with Shatirikov. Though there's again, there's probably some there's an accent or a there's something there that I've just I'm I need to hear it pronounced. Um, Shatirikov is undefeated. He is 16-0-1. His most recent wins are over Fabio Maldonado and Tiago Silva. Uh, two UFC vets there, and he's fighting Devin Clark who has gone 3-3 three and three in the UFC, coming off of that loss to Alexander Rakic. Uh, I mean, logically, this should be Clark. Uh, go with the logical one. Go with the logical one. All right, I'm going with Devin Clark. I will say this. I will not be surprised if Shatirikov beats him because A, light heavyweight is a weird division, and B you could find some pretty talented guys that you've just never heard of. Very, very shallow division, but that also means that relative to the opposition, there are talented guys outside the UFC that you've just never heard of. It's not the same issue that Lightweight has, where it's just so deep worldwide that there's killers that unless you really follow things, like Timofey Nostyukin that you're just not familiar with, and he starches Eddie Alvarez. It's more that eh, everyone, especially below a certain level, everyone kind of sucks, so there's a few guys out there who could make runs that you just haven't heard of because you don't have the time or energy to watch regional Russian MMA. Uh, Roxanne Modafferi is fighting Antonina Shevchenko. This is a big test for Antonina, you know, the other Shevchenko. Uh, she's 7-0, and uh, 1-0 in the UFC, coming off a win over Ji-Yun Kim. But Roxanne Modafferi's Gonna ask some pretty serious questions of her. Um, Roxanne's coming off of that lost Sajara Eubanks. Uh, Sajara Eubanks is just a bad matchup for her stylistically, I think, because Eubanks has more power in her strikes and is a, is a very very competent grappler. So Mod- Modafferi really excels at finding an area of the fight game that she has an edge over you in, and then kind of forcing things there. And if she doesn't have an edge over you in some respect, or you're good enough at stopping her from forcing that, then she struggles. So we're going to see Shevchenko's takedown defense and grappling game tested here. 
Uh, I'm gonna go with Modafferi, actually. Um, I'm prepared to be wrong about that. At middleweight, Christoph Yotko. Man, remember when we had hopes for Christoph Yotko? Ah, uh, back before his current three-fight losing streak. Ah, uh, Yotko is fighting a promotional newcomer, Alan... Uh, where is this guy from? I... I don't know that flag. Oh, it's Macedonia. Okay. That's the Macedonian flag. Good to know. Alan Amadovsky. I also needed that because that pronunciation changes a little bit depending on... My assumption of the pronunciation would change if he's from a different part of the world. Macedonia, I feel pretty confident with Amadovsky. Amadovsky is 8-0. This is his UFC debut. Uh, his last two fights were in Bellator. That he, again, he obviously won. He's undefeated. Uh, given Yotko's slide, man, I mean, this might just be a bit of a rough welcome for Amadovsky, but Yotko's slide makes me kind of lean the other direction. I'm going to go with Amadovsky here. I'm at bantamweight. Movsar Evolev will be fighting Seung Woo Choi. Ev these are both UFC debutantes. Evlev is 10 and 0. Oh, excuse me, not Evlev. Evloev. Uh, mea culpa. Evloev is yeah, UFC debut, done most of all of his fights in the M1 challenge and the M1 promotion, which is a pretty legit promotion for a regional thing. And Choi is 7-1, and one, uh, making his UFC debut here as well. I'll go with the Russian. Uh, just because I tend... I don't know. That almost sounds racist, I know. But I almost... If I have no better reason to do so, I will almost always pick a Russian over a Brazilian in Brazil just for the hilarity. Uh, so I'm, I'll lean towards Evloev, but... Two unknown guys, two young guys making their debuts. Uh, could be very, very wrong about this. At welterweight, Sultan Aliyev will fight Kieda Nakamura. Um, does he pronounce it Aliyev or Aliyev? I think he prefers Aliyev. Um, Aliyev just coming off of that loss to Worley Alves about a year ago. Jeez, May of 18, yeah. Um, his eye got busted up. He couldn't, like, one of his eyes was just swollen shut, and you have to stop the fight then. Uh, and Nakamura is, you know, the veteran. He's been around forever. Uh, I'll lean towards a leave. Uh, Alexander Yakovlev was supposed to fight somebody else. We had several fights that kind of, that kind of fell apart. <laughs> Uh, which was sad in some respects because there were a few like there were a few guys that I had seen some highlights of, if nothing else, that wind up falling off of this card. Uh, Yakov Lev will meet Alex De Silva. Wait, was this always this fight or not? Huh, I might be mistaken about that. Anyway, De Silva is twenty and one. He's fought in the UFC before. I'm confusing him with someone else. He has not. I think there's another De Silva. Uh, but 
De Silva's on his won his last two. Yakovlev, by contrast, has lost his last two. I mean, in fairness, one of those is Kamaru Usman, your current champion, and the other one his opponent missed weight. I'll go with Yakovlev, but Yakovlev might have kind of hit the peak here. Uh, Marcin to and our, oh, this is our other. We have a heavyweight fight here, as far as the, oh god, why are you doing this to me? Marcin Tabora will fight Shamil Abdurahimov. Uh, Tabora coming off of the win over Stefan Struve. Abdurahimov, I believe, yeah. Boy, beat Andre Arlovsky. Man, Abdurahimov just fights at odd intervals. You kind of forget he's a thing. <laughs> Um, I mean, uh, what do you want me to say? It's mediocre heavyweights. Um, probably lean towards Tabora. Uh, we have a crappy light heavyweight fight, but hopefully this one won't go long. We have Gadzimirad Antigulov, who I kind of got high on at one point. Uh, after his first two wins in the UFC were as impressive as they were, I watched some of his ACB stuff. Then he got smoked pretty hard by Iwan Kutelaba. He is fighting uh, excuse me, Michael Oleksejuk. Oleksejuk knocked out... Who was it in his last fight? Volante. Yes. <laughs> he stopped John Volante with that beautiful left of the body. Uh, before that, he beat Khalil Roundtree, but that decision was o that result was overturned. I believe he had a drug test issue. But he he handled, if you remember the actual action, he handled Roundtree pretty thoroughly over three rounds. Uh, I'm actually going to lean towards Oleksijic here. I think while Antigulov is a has some good grappling tricks, he's a bit unidirectional and a bit on the one trick side of things. And kicking everything off, Magomed Mustafayev will fight Rafael... Whoa, that guy's name. So it's not long or anything, it's just really weird. I need to look something up on him. Uh, Mustafayev coming off of that loss to Kevin Lee. He's been out for a while. Because, yeah, he had the loss to Lee in... He was on a good run. Like He had just a long set of winning streaks, and then he had the two pretty impressive UFC runs. Then he loses to Lee. November of 16... Uh, he suffered a, he suffered an injury in that fight, but that's still a long time to be out. That's yeah, that's over two years. Uh, shame because Mustafa Mustafa is a tough guy, and he's fighting Rafael. I'm I need to see. Okay, this guy is not from Brazil, so it's Rafael Fiziev. And where are you from, sir? Oh, Kyrgyzstan. Okay, yeah, I'm going with. Uh, Go with Fiziev uh, until I hear otherwise, because there might be a weird Kyrgyzstani pronunciation of that that I'm not familiar with. I'm so I, I think it's close enough to the Russian that I'm okay with Fiziev. Uh, Fiziev is six and one. This is his UFC debut. Excuse me, six and zero. Oh. Uh, that sorry, this is listed oddly. Uh, some of his th this list includes some of his non-MMA fights that he lost. Um, 
Yeah, go with Must. I'll go with Mustafaev. But that layoff's pretty. That's a legitimate layoff. All right, and that will be again UFC Fight Night 149 slash UFC on ESPN plus seven. Just need that whole dining room table to yourself, don't you? I will have coverage of that next Saturday morning. Remember, this one will start earlier in the MMA Zone of 411mania.com. So stop by as always. Say hello. Always appreciated. Okay, you know what? Let's just jump into the news. The big news. Former UFC bantamweight champion TJ Dillashaw has been suspended by USADA for two years. He'd already given up the... I mean... I hate to say he gave up the title. Look, this joke got made by, I can't remember if it was Zombie Prophet or Grabaka Hitman on Twitter, but I think it's appropriate. When it came out that New York was suspending him for a year, he TJ came out and said, I'm vacating the bantamweight title. I'm relinquishing the bantamweight title. The comparison was made, that's like looking outside of your, looking outside your window, seeing your car being repossessed and going, you know what? I'm going to relinquish that car to the, to the bank. Uh, so he, he was stripped of the title. Uh, we didn't know what the drug test was. We didn't know what the failure was for. And we know now it was for EPO, which is, I am not going to pronounce that whole thing's name. I apologize. Look, guys, I'm, there's a degree of, you know, please look this stuff up on your own that I'm going to throw at you in this segment. So, I let me apologize. If you just want to take my word for all this stuff, go ahead. I don't encourage that. I'm kind of a moron. But if you don't want to go through all the effort to look up some of the stuff that I did, and I, I just don't want to pronounce this thing's whole name, EPO is a long-standing drug that you that is used by endurance athletes, uh, cyclists, marathoners, triathletes, uh, the guys who do like Nordic combined, uh, any of those, any of those like really grueling endurance based sports. EPO's uh, been a thing for a while because it's designed to increase the amount of red blood cells to increase their ability to to increase both their prevalence within your bloodstream and to increase the amount of hemoglobin and oxygen that they can move through your body, which naturally helps your endurance. Uh, again, been a thing for a while. Uh, and EPO is one of those weird things that... Now, let me be very clear about this. EPO will give you these results faster and more efficiently than doing this naturally, but if you want to get essentially the same results that you get from EPO with a purely technological base, um, altitude training will do it. And not just altitude training, but this is one of the reasons that like Big Bear in California is so popular as a training destination. It's not just that it's at altitude. I mean, I live at altitude. Uh, I live in Utah. I live... I forget exactly how high we are here. But Big Bear... I think, like, the point being, Big Bear as a location is not that much different from where I just kind of live in terms of, you know, from sea level. In fact, I used to live higher in the mountains. That, when I was up there, it was probably a lot more equivalent. 
But Big Bear all is also in California, and I believe its location means that you can you know, you can so you can drive up to it, train, and then sleep much much closer to sea level. And that maximizes how this works because your the point being your body spends time at a higher altitude with thinner where the air is thinner where there's lower oxygen. Your body then, to compensate for the fact that it's doing work at a higher altitude, will produce more red blood cells to help facilitate optimal performance. Then you go back and you sleep and you recuperate at sea level where the air is much more oxygenated. And that, that process is designed to kind of maximize these things. You can get the same thing with you know altitude tents or um, like hyperbolic chambers. Hyperbaric chambers, excuse me. One of the two. I can't remember. Forgive me, my suffixes are off. But you, a, a chamber that will artificially mess with the atmosphere will provide a lot of the same results. Again, EPO just kind of does this more efficiently and more quickly. If you To get the same kind of results, it takes... It takes a while to do that naturally. I mean, if you look at guys who, you know, will climb Mount Everest, for example, you spend weeks at various levels of base camp, at various base camps at different elevations just to get your body used to being that in that kind of altitude, in that kind of environment. And it, it takes time, and EPO artificially accelerates that. Um, this is a pretty, this is pretty bad for, for TJ Dillashaw. Now, there's a couple of things about this that I think need to be addressed, and I'll try to be brief here. One is that, uh, the sample that tested positive for EPO, after that happened, they went back and tested one of his previous samples that also tested positive for it. I know there were some people who kind of went, well, if we're not testing for everything, then what are we doing here? Now, on the one hand, from a purely logic, from a, in a vacuum, that makes sense. Here's a bit of reality. USADA as a organization has finite resources, not to say limited. I mean, they are inherently limited, but not to say limited and imply that they're you know, scrambling for everything, and that there's some rinky-dink operation. No, they're not. But they, but time, money, and manpower are finite resources. There's not an army of technology. Uh, excuse me, of technicians with an unlimited amount of time and equipment to perform tests, uh, to perform all of these drug tests. EPO has a very, very limited shelf life. Half-life, excuse me, not shelf-life. It's a very, very small half-life. The test for EPO is also very specific. If you're running a lab, or you have to you know, oversee you know, this vast organization, and it takes time and money and manpower to test for this substance that you are very unlikely that A, doesn't get used a whole lot, Again, there's other ways to kind of get the benefits of EPO. Uh, I shouldn't say it isn't used a whole lot. But 
again, has is very, very hard to catch in terms of just the timing of everything. And has a very specific test. You might just say, okay, when we do... When you do like very spe- when you do specific in competition style windows, you might test for it because you those are more exhaustive tests. But the random tests you don't always test for this. I mean, again, once he popped for it the first time, they went back and retested the other sample, and he popped for that again. So, you know, not a one-time thing necessarily. There were at least two separate instances. There's some, you know, slightly more obscure kinds of drugs or drugs that, or, you know, chemicals that you just, if you're running, if you're overseeing USADA and you're having to sign the checks and justify the manpower and the labor and you're dealing with samples from different people from all over the world and you have to do all this in a timely manner, there are decisions that have to be made along those lines. If you don't test every sample, every random sample for EPO, just because it's deeply inefficient at scale over the course of a year. I mean, look, drug testing again. There's manpower considerations. There's financial considerations. There's time considerations. These are things. Drug testing, I don't know how many people, I don't know why more people don't really seem to understand the mechanics of drug testing. Uh, and, I mean, look, is that, is that an exploitable hole in how things are in how the system is currently propagated? Sure, but you're never gonna get a. I mean, I don't think there's a perfect system as such. I really don't. I'm not pro drugs in sport, mind you, necessarily, but I, again, just I don't think there's a lot of logistical consideration that the fan base has that segments of the fan base have given to the realities of drug testing on this scale. Uh, apparently they went back and tested all of the sa- any of the samples that they had saved from TJ's uh, previous fights and whatnot. None of those tested positive, which is very fortunate for TJ because at that point, each separate, each other instance could be counted as a separate infraction. So if they'd caught, I don't know, say from the, if one of his tests and I'd, if his test for one of his samples from the second Rafael Austin Salfight at UFC 200 had popped three PO, that could have been a separate second infraction that would have tacked on another four years to the two-year suspension. So, uh, they did. Apparently, they did have the samples from at least the second Garbrandt fight that they retested and did not pop. I did not have any positive results for EPO, so take that for whatever you want to take it for. Um, this is pretty pretty backbreaking for the career of TJ Dillashaw. Um, he's 33, and that means he will basically be 35 when he comes back. And bantamweight is not a division that. Uh, <laughs> People are known for having long careers in past the age of, you know, 35-ish. You see that at the heavier weight classes for a couple of reasons. One, just a lack, just smaller talent pools. Two, 
fighting at heavyweight and light heavyweight, the rewards for experience and proper decision-making are greater than, are greater over time than the rewards for a lot of speed, a lot of reflexes kind of scenario. Whereas bantamweight, flyweight, you know, these smaller weight classes, everything is reflexes. Everything is timing. Everything is quick twitch. I mean, look at Wilson Hayes. Guy had a really good run, but over his last few fights, his reflex, he just slowed a little bit. And that's led to a lot of a lot of his downfall. And you know, there's a pretty significant athletic and biological difference between 33 and 35. I'm not saying TJ can't come back and have a bit of a run. Uh, I wouldn't discount that possibility, but 35 at bantamweight is pretty old. Uh, that's all I'm going to say as far as that goes. Um, TJ has not denied this. He came out with a video. He made his statement. I uh, just said he did it. Wanted to kind of own up to it. Uh, sort of. It's an uh, odd. There's some odd phrases he uses in that statement. But that's the last we'll see of him for two years. This casts a pretty stark uh, pall over his career. I mean, this is a guy who I said, I said this publicly about TJ. I th- I did not think there was anyone at bantamweight who was really going to beat him. I thought Marais would ask some interesting questions, but in the end, I but you know Marlon Marais against TJ Dillashaw on paper, I favored Dillashaw. And I thought the rest of that division just didn't have a tremendous amount to offer him that he had not demonstrated an ability to deal with. I fo- I said I think he I thought he would surpass Cruz as far as being the best bantamweight ever. I thought that was absolutely on the table for him, if not a near inevitability. Quite frankly, yeah, no, not anymore. Um, again, this cast a pretty big shadow over a lot of his career and some of how you determine that will be largely up to you individually I mean I'm not here to tell you how to feel about this kind of stuff um yeah sucks for TJ sucks for people who are fans of his but that was uh that was a rough one he's yeah he's gonna be out and I would be a little bit surprised if he was able to really kind of recapture the form he's had over the last couple of years when he comes back at 35. Uh, All right. Again, bit of a downer there, but that happens. Uh, Needs to be said, though, very briefly. I don't want to get off on a... I'm not going to go deep on the drug test... uh, some of the philosophical questions or you know, logistical questions of drug testing. Just kind of an observation. Uh, he got popped for, again, EPO from a urinalysis sample. MMA fighters are really bad at cheating when it comes to chemicals. I mean, it, I bring this up specifically because in the... Very recently, actually, there was a ring of... There was a drug... Uh, a PED ring. I believe they were Austrian, and they competed in... Um, 
I want to say Nordic combined, uh, which is a winter sport. Uh, comprised of, I believe there's a biathlon, which on skis is a cross-country segment, and then there's a shooting component. So you see, they're the guys that you see with you know the rifles on their back. You ski a couple of loops of the track, then you have a, you know, a series of targets that you have to shoot. If you miss, you wind up taking penalty laps. It's a very grueling sport. It's one I enjoy watching it actually. And I believe that's anything that can that uh, the Nordic combined includes elements of ski jumping into your final score. I I enjoy the sport actually when I happen to watch it. Uh, I don't watch it as you know, I'm not watching it religiously or anything, but I enjoy it. I there's a lot that goes into that, and I believe that was the sport that these guys got busted for. And this ring, uh, they passed every test. So they beat all the conventional drug testing. They pa- they beat the biological passport protocols that were in place. Uh, they could not be caught by testing. They were caught because somebody, for want of a better expression, ratted them out. Really, really sophisticated uh, PED use does not get caught via urinalysis. It's, uh, it takes... Uh, it does take information. I mean, I know that you know, in certain respects, John Jones cutting a deal with USADA for reduced sentencing in exchange for information was has become kind of a meme in certain segments of the MMA community. But this is how this is how it's done. I mean, look at the uh, you know the whole Russian doping thing from the Sochi Olympics. I mean, they didn't they didn't fail any tests. Somebody actually came forward and revealed the state-sponsored nature of that widespread kind of corruption and cheating. That's how, at the highest levels of this, that's how it happens. You don't really get guys failing tests. Testing is responsible for a very small percentage of how people are caught. Let's contrast that with MMA, where it's a bunch of guys getting caught literally on the tests. MMA fighters are just bad at cheating. I mean, look how many guys failed drug tests when the only thing you had to do was know, okay, I know how long this stays in my bloodstream, so the only time I'm going to be tested is before fight night. So literally, as long as I do not inject or ingest anything after... This date, I'm going to be fine. And how many guys were still failing tests? Just not very good at it, guys. <laughs> Alright. Uh, we had fight announcements. International Fight Week got a lot of its fights announced this last week. Uh, we had UFC... So that would be UFC. Let me bring up my list here. Excuse me. I believe 238... Or just the July 6th card. Um, I'm going to have to look at this. So 238 is... Yeah, we okay, we have that one's main event. We've talked about that before. That's Cejudo and Marais, as well as Shevchenko and I. Um, 239, Jones and Santos versus Nunes and... Uh, at Jones versus Santos and Nunes versus Holm. Uh, I know they had... Announced a lot, a fair number of fights recently. 
list and I could post it in certain places um going to have to scroll through some of the stuff here guys I apologize uh let's see UFC 2 okay yeah UFC 239 okay why is that not here Okay, so sorry. UFC 239 got fleshed out a lot. Um, we had known we had known about Jones and Thiago Santos, Nunes and Holm, uh, which is again I've talked about those a little bit already. That card will also feature a heavyweight fight between Francis Ngannou and Junior dos Santos, and one has to imagine the winners in the title picture. Um, Luke Rockhold moves up to light heavyweight for the first time in ever, certainly in the UFC. I'm gonna. Check his career real fast. Yeah, I think ever. I think uh, all of his strike force fights were at middleweight. So yeah, I think will. Uh, I think this is his first ever time at light heavyweight. He's coming off of that loss to Yoel Romero last year. That that was a brutal knockout. Uh, he'll be fighting Jan Blahovich. <laughs> Poor Jan Blahovich. <laughs> this guy just. He's coming off of the sorry, he's coming off of that loss to Santos, but uh, so a solid enough opponent to debut Rockhold against at light heavyweight against. I do favor Rockhold a little bit in that fight. That event will also feature Diego Sanchez versus Michael Chiesa because reasons, and Jorge Masvidal versus Ben Askren will take place on that card. That's a good fight. Uh, Masvidal's kind of surging at the moment. Ben Askren is Ben Askren. Uh, so, 239 is shaping up. That's a pretty solid card. Uh, that Oh, they also announced for that same card Edmund Shabazian and Jack Marshman. Eh, that's a big pile of meh. But, again, you, you, know, you get Masvidal and Askren, Ganu Dos Santos, Nunes Holm, Jones and Santos... That's a solid card. That's a really solid card right now on paper. Uh, let's see. We talked a little bit last week about... Yeah, we already knew the main event for UFC and ESPN4. And that's Woodley and Lawler. Let's see what else. Oh, they made official uh, the replacement for Yoel Romero for UFC... Fight Night... Oh, excuse me, USC and ESPN3. The main event started life as Paulo Costa versus Yoel Romero. Costa fell out, so they were going to do the rematch between Yoel Romero and, and Ronaldo Jacare Souza. Romero fell out, and now we're getting Souza versus Jack Hermanson. That was made official. I know they talked about that. We talked a little bit about that being the way they were things were leaning, but they did officially sign it and announce it, so... Again, that on some levels that sucks for Jacare, but that's also probably about the best that situation was going to become in terms of who the UFC was going to get for it. Uh, let's see. The UFC started releasing some of their promotional material for Nama Yunus versus Andraj. So that's UFC 237. Uh, again, Jose Aldo versus Volkanovski seems to still be on at the moment. So, I, and I think if 
Aldo versus Volkanovski was going to... Because Jose Aldo had an infection in his knee that called into question his ability to be on this card. Again, I think at this point, if he was going to pull out, we would have heard of it. So that seems to still be on. Uh, let's see. Was there any other major fight announcements? I don't think so. Again, they flushed out 239 for International Fight Week, but other than that, I think there's been a lot of... Uh, I don't think we've had any major announcements just yet. Um, let's see. Oh, geez, I almost forgot about this. Uh, let's tack this on to the very sad news. But BJ Penn, MMA legend, uh, had a, I believe, a restraining order filed against him by... I don't know if they're married. I think his wife, at any rate, the mother of his children. Uh, she alleges some pretty terrible things. Uh, some domestic violence, uh, sexual assault. She's, uh, among other things, she alleges, and let me be very clear, this is her side of things. This is her statement. That's all I'm talk That's all I'm referencing here. I do not know to what degree there's been an investigation into this. So, I am a very evidence-based person when it comes to these things. I have always been. If the evidence comes out in support of this, I'm happy to denounce BJ. But I, I also know that assuming you know, guilty until proven innocent or accusations equals guilt is a terrible, terrible mentality to have that has led to historically bad things, so I try not to adopt it. Uh, she, uh, she also alleges that BJ's been a drug addict. I don't believe she specifies which drug, but she, he's been an addict of some kind for many years, and that he uses fight camps as kind of an, uh, to help him stay clean. I mentioned that, you know, I thought BJ was the kind of guy who didn't know who he was if he wasn't fighting. That's just kind of the general sense I got. I have nothing to support that other than my observations and life experience. So, I, again, I can't speak to this. I have never met BJ Penn under any circumstances, so this is just this is what she has said. As of right now, BJ's fight with Clay Guida is still scheduled. That has not been called off. Um, again, this... Again, man, it, it sucks. It sucks that human beings, assuming what she has put forth is true. Uh, everything I'm about to say comes with that caveat. Uh, it's you know it does suck. It really sucks for the people who have to go through that. Um, if you're a fan of dark humor, I think the f I saw a reaction to this news about BJ that made me laugh because I have a terrible sense of humor in some respects. I forget, I saw it on Twitter, and I forget who mentioned it, So uh, who made the joke, so I apologize for not citing this, but this came out and someone said, well, there goes BJ one-upping Matt Hughes yet again. Uh, Hughes, as some of you may recall, is dealing with uh, the allegations of you know, domestic abuse and his own kind of you know, mental health issues. 
that came out a few months ago. Uh, again, that if this is true, that really sucks. And BJ needs a lot of help. In addition to potentially deserving jail time. I take a very, very dim view of some of the things he's accused of. I... I, again, I am happy to wait for evidence of them as a, in addition to someone coming forward. But if someone is guilty of those things, I, I have an extraordinarily dim view of that. Uh, I have a very, very low tolerance for people who do that kind of thing. So, I, I assume more news will come out as an investigation goes into that as by the proper authorities as deemed appropriate. But don't be too surprised if BJ winds up not fighting Clay Guida at this point, if just from a practical standpoint. Alright. Is there any other news that needs to kind of be talked about here? Oh, this should probably have fallen under fight announcements, but I'll go ahead and give it its own issue here. Um, Dana White is walking back a little bit some of the stuff about Brock Lesnar versus Daniel Cormier. It's He was out making some of the rounds this week, and it's not a done deal. We haven't talked to Brock. Um, this is, this is public negotiation, I think, as much as anything. On the one hand, I do believe that when he says he hasn't talked to him, that's probably true. They probably have not entered into extended negotiations about this fight. But I think, I think Dana's also testing the waters a little bit in terms of the fan reaction. And I think he's kind of trying to put a little bit of pressure on Brock to come to the table and let's start talking or we're going to move on without you. Uh, Some people have mentioned, some people who know a little bit more about some of the drawing issues than I do that you let, I think a lot of people, that they think a lot of people are sleeping on just how big a potential Brock and DC fight would be. And, you know, I might cop to that. I might be within that camp in that I've... I think it's the biggest fight for Daniel Cormier, short of a John Jones trilogy. I think Brock, he and Brock will do the most business. I also think uh, that, you know, again, if you're Daniel Cormier and you're looking for the most financial reward, you have, again, largely two options. You have John Jones and you have Brock Lesnar. And... Brock is a significantly easier fight for Daniel Cormier than John Jones for potentially even greater financial reward. Um, okay, can I also say that, again, because this kind of got brought up, I know there were some people out there kind of questioning whether or not Daniel Cormier could, you know, out-wrestle Brock Lesnar, and you people are... Okay, I'm not going to insult you by calling you morons. 
but you're treading very close to that line. Let me, just for the record, for those of you who don't maybe understand the difference here, Brock was a very, very good wrestler in a lot of respects. He was a, I believe he was a national champion. I'm not trying to sleep on Brock's wrestling credentials because they're legitimate. But Brock never wrestled internationally at all. By contrast, here is Daniel Cormier. And just for the record, because there's a lot of people who just don't seem to understand the difference. Daniel Cormier is a he fell short of being an All-American in his first seat at, when he was first in Oklahoma State. Uh, he fell one short of becoming a national champion when he lost to Cale Sanderson, of all people, who's one of the best wrestlers that the United States has ever produced. In fact, of his of the ten losses that Cormier suffered throughout his entire collegiate career, six of them were to Kale Sanderson. Good grief. Cormier wrestled internationally, which is something Brock never did. He represented the uh, he represented the United States at the World Championships for five consecutive years. He took fourth place at the 2004 Olympics. He was one of the favorites to win gold in the 2008 Olympics. He was the top five at the World Championships on two separate occasions. He won bronze in 2007, won gold at the Pan Am Games. I mean, this is a guy... Uh, he also won gold at the... There's a there's a very prestigious, very very grueling uh, wrestling competition. The I'm gonna butcher this because I can never remember how to pronounce this thing. It's the gold the Golden Grand Prix. Um, even yeah, Yargin. Uh, if you follow kind of international wrestling, it's a pretty big deal. Uh, he won that. This is a guy who had a very very successful international wrestling career. If you put Brock Lesnar and Daniel Cormier on just a wrestling mat and told them to wrestle, Daniel Cormier wins. The notion that Brock is going to out-wrestle him is foolish. Brock might score a double leg in the MMA context, but... I'm sorry, if you think Brock's gonna go in there and out-wrestle a guy with the credentials of Daniel Cormier, you are smoking something. That is That is a very, very kind of silly proposition. Alright, let's see. What else? Any other major news? Uh, we talked a little bit last week about... Yeah, a lot of this is... A lot of this was... Yeah, this... There were... Again, there were a couple of big things, uh, specifically, you know, Dillashaw getting the suspension... But there wasn't a tremendous amount of news. All right. Oh, we 
refresh Twitter one more time. I I don't think anything else broke in the last couple of minutes. All right. Uh, that's going to go ahead and do it for me then. So on to plugs. Oh, sorry. Brief shout out to, uh, I mentioned him a little bit earlier. Vas oh, God, I can't believe I forgot that. This is why I know I question you guys taking me seriously. Uh, something from Poirier versus Holloway. One of the things Holloway never adjusted to was Poirier's jab. God, I'm, I'm so annoyed I forgot that because there was so much there was actually I had stuff I wanted to talk about as it pertained to that because the fact that Poirier has such a very active effective and accurate jab when he's standing opposite stance to his opponents most of the time is a rarity the majority of the time if you're standing opposite stance so southpaw to orthodox the ja the punching lanes for the jab become muddled and you leave yourself very open to the counter hook from the lead hand of your opponent and that's why you see when you see a lot of uh, opposite stance fighters the lead the rear hand does a lot of the is the first punch a lot of the time whereas the lead hand becomes either just hooking or just kind of range finding instead of an actual offensive weapon and Poirier has a very beautiful opposite stance jab that he's given a lot of guys trouble with and now that you guys like Gagey and Alvarez and you can now include Holloway in that Oh, I'm annoyed. I had more stuff that I wanted to talk about with that, but I'm not going to. I don't want to keep you guys forever. I remembered I wanted. To, I remembered that because I wanted to give a brief shout out to Vasily Lomachenko, who smoked some poor over Masakai, uh in four rounds on Friday. And Lomachenko again is uh, fights southpaw. He's actually right-handed, but he fights southpaw. And just that that opposite stance thing reminded me of something I wanted to talk about with Poirier. But for those boxing fans. Watch Vasily Lomachenko. Do yourself a favor. He's he's great. All right, on to plugs. I promise this time. Um, I I started my series of podcasts, a, a limited series, looking at the different phases of the MCU, wrapping up the Infinity Saga. So that will be phase one, uh, which we just did. Myself, Mark Radlich, and Alexis Haina. Had a good time talking about Phase 1 of the MCU. So Iron Man, The Incredible Hulk, Iron Man 2, Thor, Captain America, The First Avenger, and The First Avengers Movie. You can find that on the Radulich and Broadcasting Network this coming... We record those on Friday evenings. We'll be tackling Phase 2 this week, which has a lot of material. Uh, Iron Man 3, Captain America, The Winter Soldier, Guardians of the Galaxy, Thor, The Dark World, Avengers Age of Ultron... Ant-Man, and I'm forgetting at least one. There's at least one other in there. I'll, I'm going to rewatch them all this week, so I, I will make sure that I have all that information. But <laughs> So we're tackling that. We're doing it more from a narrative perspective than we are pure film craft, although that does crop up on occasion. We're just doing a big countdown to Avengers Endgame, which comes out in a couple of weeks, so very excited for that. On Tuesday, Mark Radlich and I reviewed... Crap, what was it? Uh, Shazam? Shazam. We reviewed Shazam. I'll tell you how much of an impact that movie had on me. I barely remember it existed. So you can listen to our thoughts on that. Um, 
Mark liked it. I was largely nonplussed. Uh, I think Alexis Hanna joined us for that as well, so you can listen to our review of Shazam. This coming Tuesday, Mark and I will be reviewing Hellboy. And oh boy. Uh, that is not looking good. I haven't seen it yet. Withholding judgment. I have in the past, again, taken a very different stance from the general consensus of things, so I might see it and deeply enjoy it. But uh, it's not doing well, and it did not open well financially either. So, But Mark and I will tackle that whole movie on Tuesday on Damn You Hollywood, so listen to that. Uh, again, Friday will be uh, Countdown to Endgame Phase 2, and Saturday... UFC Fight Night 149. So, tune in for that. Thank you all very much. Next Sunday, we'll be back at our regularly scheduled recording time, and we will... I'll have Jeff back with me, unless something comes up between now and then. Next week, we will review Fight Night 149 and preview... 27th... Yes, we will preview UFC on ESPN3. At the moment, that is Jacare versus Hermanson. Greg Hardy in another co-main event. I mean, you've got Cowboy Oliveira and Mike Perry playing third fiddle to Greg Hardy and Dmitry Smolyakov. That is such crap. Oh, John Lineker and Corey Sandhagen are on that card. Yes. Uh, there's some good fights on that card. That may, again, that's not the sexy, that's not like top to bottom stacked, but there's some good fights on that card. We'll preview all of it next week. Hope you'll all come back for that. Until then, thank you all so very much for listening. I know there's a lot of MMA content out there. There's a lot of MMA podcasts. You choose mine, and I thank you for it. Make sure to subscribe to the 411 Podcasting Network. Uh, we're on iTunes. Uh, Stitcher, Google Play, YouTube, wherever you find us. We're just happy you do. So subscribe, please. Leave a review if you're so inclined. Positive, negative. Uh, I appreciate useful criticisms. I'm happy to have it. Until next time, thanks again. Stay safe out there, and please continue to be well, be safe, and behave. <laughs>